I'm Chris, and this is my Writing Table Podcast, where we talk to authors and other creatives about the writing world and what it takes to create the books that we love to read. Ready? Pull up a chair, and let's begin. Barbara Borland is the author of Fake Like Me, a finalist for the 2020 Edgar Best Novel Award. Her debut novel, I'll Eat When I'm Dead, was a Refinery29 Best Book of 2017 and Irish Independent Book of the Year. Her third novel, The Force of Such Beauty, follows a retired Olympic athlete who marries a prince. Borland's novels use imaginative escapism to process emotional conditions endemic to contemporary women's lives. Cast in the mold of universal literary forms, the detective story, the thriller, the fairy tale, they weave in and out of their genres until the plot turns inside out and the narrative upon reflection appears to be something else entirely. She lives in Baltimore. Welcome, Barbara. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. Barbara, tell us how you got your start in writing. My very first job out of school was at Forbes Traveler, which is a now defunct travel imprint in the old building on Fifth Avenue. And I spent all of my 20s working in media and um, through sort of the (laughs) end of the good days and the recession and everything else. And I started working my first book when my husband took a job in Baltimore. I was about to be 30 and Yeah, I think I wanted to do something more with my time than work for a company. You know, I wanted to be able to do my own work. And so, uh, yes, we moved to Baltimore and I wrote the draft of my first novel, which I wrote in 2014. They bought it in 2015. It came out in 2017. Yeah. And I've been writing ever since. And my third novel, The Force of Such Beauty, comes out this July. How did you arrive at this blend of different genres? Because you blend kind of a thriller and some romance and looks like even kind of fairy tale, you know, you weave it all together. So tell us, how did you come up with this? You know, all of my books are based in the experience of being a woman. It's embedded in all of the narratives that I've constructed. And this one is very much a fairy tale, a literal fairy tale. It is the story of a retired athlete who marries a prince. And fairy tales are stories about the control of women's bodies by generally government entities. You know, folk tales tend to be talking rabbits and magic coins and something that turns you into a fish. And fairy tales usually are about structures of power. And when I started writing this, I'd been thinking really profoundly about what it meant to be female, just to be in my body. And as I got older and as I as I continued to be ambitious that there was a part of me that had been so conditioned to do less. You know, that the older that I got, the more ambitious that I felt and the more something inside of me kept whispering, you know, stop, (laughs) let your husband be in charge. And I thought that was such an interesting impulse within myself. Part of it is the kind of have a baby, stay at home, be a mommy, which is both like the sort of impulse to like care and nurture and have a family, but also in the United States where we have so little social support, for women with children, it's sort of the reality for a lot of people. If you want to have a kid, you're going to have to, one of you will probably have to stay at home full time. And so I just couldn't figure out what parts of me had been conditioned and what parts of me were genuine, you know? Um, Yeah. I wanted to investigate it. And so I sort of wanted to go back to the beginning of this narrative. What is the first story that we hear about women's futures or even women's professions? You know, we start hearing fairy tales when we're very, very, very small. And it's always the same story. It's find a man, be a wife. 
And that's where it ends. That's what I felt very trained into. And I wanted to come at it with empathy and curiosity. So moving forward on the force of such beauty, where did you take that story to, to accomplish what you were setting out to accomplish? Yeah, sure. I uh, The book opens with an unhappy princess. It is a woman living in a castle. She's making an attempt to leave. She is not successful. And then she goes back and kind of reflects on all of the things that had led her up to that point. Upon first glance, I think appears to be a first person narrative and it appears to be really straightforward. And I think that that, like most novels, you can expect the things that uh, show up in the beginning to reappear in a different way in the end. It's difficult to write, admittedly. To write someone who is naive and who kind of falls in love with an autocrat was really difficult. It's hard to write characters who aren't really well-educated because you have to kind of, at least for me, I had to figure out sort of a new bag of tricks in terms of what was she observing and what was she feeling. And it was very gauzy to write. It was like building a cake, you know, Um, also to try to work within the lens of the fairy tale and the language of the fairy tale and things that are beautiful and glamorous, but also kind of tempting in a Faustian bargain sort of way. So what did you see in this character who was obviously unlike you? What did you see in her... (laughs) that was similar to you or similar to most women? Well, I wanted her to be kind of endemic to the things that we are conditioned to believe. I wanted her to be primed to believe in what is effectively autocracy, a man who shows up and says, I'm going to take care of you. You don't ever think I'm going to do all the thinking for both of us. I was curious about what would make a person feel that way. She is a retired athlete and she very specifically is a distance runner. I run, but I run very, very badly. (laughs) Really admit this. I am the world's worst runner. I make every mistake that you can make. The biggest one, I overheat really easily. I like to feel like I'm like a fussy racehorse, but I really just, I'm not just not that good. I've never been that good at it. I'm going to be 40 soon and I'm still bad at this thing I've been doing most of my adult life. And running is really simple, but it has a really great, you know, as far as sports go, it requires very little of you. You just put on sneakers and off you go. But one of the things that you see if you run races that is just very, very clear in a way that it's not clear in other sports is that the cisgendered men are the ones always crossing the finish line first. They just leave everybody else in the dust. And it's really hard not to feel when in the context of a race, like men have all the power and nobody else has any. It's really, it's this really profound kind of hierarchy. You're being competitive that you enter into and that you physically see all the time. I run because I enjoy it. It's because it's also, this is the other thing. It is this massive, massive, massive high. For Caroline, for the main character of the book, when she has retired from athletics, you know, she's got this hole in her heart where the dopamine used to be. And she's got a worldview that has one kind of person always being in charge and one kind of person always being the best. And she's kind of really primed for someone to tell her how the rest of her life is going to be, even as she sort of struggles to be that way. Honestly, she's a very sympathetic character, I I say. (laughs) I hope that readers also feel (laughs) that way. She's really loving and she's bodily and she's caring. And, you know, she's a very emotional person. Her lack of higher education is not to say that she's not smart. She's very smart. I think this is true for a lot of elite athletes have to do this. They choose between one thing and another. Like any of us, it's really hard to be super successful at several different things. And, you know, athletics just takes so much out of you, yeah. you know, to train and, and to be competitive. How far do you run? You're not. Me? Serious. Oh, yeah. I run like few, fewer than five miles, like four miles well, usually. Yeah. That's great though. That's <laughs> great. I used to jog with my best friend when we were like early married and after we had babies and, and then a couple of years down the road, I found out I had MS. And so it really like deprived me of my ability to walk without looking horrible. I mean, I 
I drug one foot and I limped with the other. It was ugly. And then after years, I got on this great drug and I went to physical therapy again and learned to kind of walk and jog. It all led up to a Komen 5K with some friends. Mm-hmm. And this was the first 5K I had done in over a decade. Well, the ones I'd run before, they didn't have that electronic bumper, you know, that mm-hmm. tracks your number. <laughs> I'm still super slow. Okay. I'm, I'm, it's ugly running, but it's a huge yeah. accomplishment to get to do this. I get ready to cross the finish line and my daughter was there and there were all these friends and they're all off to the side and they're cheering me on and like, I'm watching them. And all of a sudden I see their faces, jaws are dropping and they're like, (gasps) and I hit that bumper and went, just nailed the asphalt. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I know. It's like, yes, she got there, but no, she didn't. (laughs) So I did a couple more 5Ks after that. And then I said, okay, I proved I could do it. Now I'm done. The more power to you, four miles is, is pretty darn good. It's not that much more than a 5K, admittedly. And the thing I really like about races, I know that the competitive spirit is kind of getting us there, but for the most part, I love to just see the wide variety of bodies that can run because running, it's an impact sport. So it doesn't worry. Mm-hmm. Whenever you start, you can be short, you can be tall, you can be flexible, inflexible, you can be older, younger, bigger, smaller. It really doesn't matter. It sucks for everybody at the beginning. It just is always <laughs> bad. It's always bad. You just have to put miles on your bones. You know, you just have to make the joints like really hit. And then over time, you just get better and better and better. At the last five miler I did, the person who I pegged my pace to, she was a veteran. She was wearing a t-shirt that commemorated the last Marine marathon that she had done down in Annapolis. And she yes. had a crazy limp. <laughs> she was like maybe in her... 50s, I want to say. Yeah. How long have we had women in the Marines? But she had a military look about her and the veterans t-shirt, but she had a great pace. Like she was really a strong runner. And so, you know, I just like tagged to her and stayed behind her the whole way. It's so inspiring to me to be surrounded by so many different kinds of bodies, making it work and moving forward. And it always feels so hopeful and it feels so pleasurable. And it's so joyful to be in movement and to be in your body and to be out in the world. And there's something about competition. I feel sorry for athletes a lot of times, like professional athletes, because you take all of that joy away from it. I think, you know, you spend all of your youth competing and you work so hard that they get these crazy, crazy, crazy injuries that take them out for years and years and years. How do you find your way back to feeling satisfied with just being, you know, once you've had that really big rush, it's a hard thing to do to yourself. I mean, you're a runner. So did you have to do additional research in the racing side? I did. I read someone's doctoral thesis about the history of distance running in apartheid South Africa, because Mm -hmm. the character of Caroline, the main character of this book is South African. And it is one of the few sports truly in South Africa that long-term was not as segregated as the other sports, even under apartheid. They have this crazy, crazy, crazy long race called the Comrades, which runs from Johannesburg down to Durban and back again. It's 50 miles long. It's a world famous race. It's been going for a hundred years and it has been unofficially segregated most of the time that it's been running. And it's been officially segregated since the 1970s, which is like the high point of apartheid. I mean, at night they segregated the roads, but during the day it was really difficult. And I think that there's something so special about that, that when people want to walk together and they want to be together, that's where they want to be. And so, yes, I read someone's doctoral thesis about that from, I think the University of Illinois, I read some other running memoirs and sports memoirs, but boy, sports memoirs are tough. I don't know if you've ever read that David Foster Wallace essay on Chris Ebert's tennis memoir. No. I mean, she's just like, boy, what a day. 
tennis was hard. I did my best. <laughs> oh, God. A lot of sports memoirs really are kind of limited to that. But I actually, admittedly, I really enjoyed Andre Agassi's Open. Oh my gosh, yeah. it's so good. It's an incredible book. He worked with an amazing writer. He did not do it on his own. And he admits that he didn't do it on his own. But he's so open about all of the pain of doing what he's been doing and the stress of his background and the stress of training. It's really, it's a beautiful book. It's kind of fun when you're writing a novel and the research is so fascinating. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you can dig in too deep and then you're like, okay, I've got to get back to the actual writing, but the research is really fun. Which comes first, the plot or the main characters? I guess it's both. For all of my books, I'm working on my fourth now. For all of them, it's been the same thing where I have an idea and it happens in a second and I know what the ending is. It just happens. You sort of have the this very brief idea of the outline of it. And it's like a little bit of premise and a little bit of character and then a, an understanding about what the ending is because you have to work towards that. How do you plan oh, it? Oh gosh. I do outline and I do try to keep track of things as I go. Depending on what I'm trying to do, I'll mark things out into a Google Doc or on 8 million legal pads. <laughs> I also use note cards like crazy. I don't know if you do this. Anytime I think of anything, I put it on a note card and I try to sort of go through my stacks, you know, yes. whether it's like notes that I've taken from other sources or it's things that I'm trying to remember to pay attention to in the work. I find that's a really effective way just to keep me, you know, looking in the document and then looking at a piece of paper and not looking at anything else for the time that I'm focusing. I had the idea for Force in the summer of 2016. I was in a gallery in Paris with a friend of mine who was very pregnant at the time with her first daughter. And we were in this beautiful portrait gallery and we're surrounded by all these paintings of these dead rich women, just these women who had been stuffed and stitched into these kind of stiff contexts and they're bejeweled and they're adorned. And you just think, you know, that woman probably had a hundred miscarriages and maybe she died at 40. They just kind of dressed her up. And that was the most important thing that she could have been. And my friend was just sort of really freaked out about what it meant to, to change her adult identity and to become kind of the kind of reproductive unit of her family, just like on a really basic level. She just was Am I losing my power? Am I losing myself? What is going to happen to me? I think at the time, Meghan Markle had maybe started dating Prince Harry. We talked about her and a couple of other princesses in this sort of like hurtling that they all do towards this life that then they all look so incredibly unhappy. And all the women in these portraits around us also looked incredibly unhappy, which, you know, it's a painting. They could have made them look any way they wanted. And uh, I had the idea for it in that moment when we were talking and then actually started writing it the week that my first novel came out, which I can't believe that that's what the timestamp says. That whole week felt like a million years, you know, that was in 2017. So I got to pick at it on and off until October of last year. <laughs> but you wrote other novels while you were working on this. Oh yeah. The one I'm working on now, I've been working on since July of 2020. I get a focus and I'm able to spend like maybe two weeks thinking about what I'm thinking about because the work is always coming and going, right? Like the work that's in process with my editor, I've got a set of tasks and I've got, you know, three months or whatever, six months, and then it goes back to her and then she's going to sit on it for a while. And then I have this weird downtime, right? Where it's like, well, my book went away. And I usually spend exactly one week doing totally nothing or totally like goofing off, which for me is getting on a plane and going somewhere and seeing friends and being utterly at ends in the world, uh, going to museums and taking in information. And then I get antsy and I want to sit down and do something else, but it cannot be the thing that I'm working on. So it always has to be, yeah, something, whatever is the new thing. I'm sort of constantly leapfrogging, but that's good. Cause I think you have to sit and wait 
you know, it gives you some perspective. I've been on one project and look at it every day and you feel like I've got to stay with this. I've got to stay with this. But then when you park it for a while, I'm like that too, that I cannot just sit and just wait. I've got to work on something. Right. But then when you get that back, you get that perspective of, oh, oh, now I see it differently. And the same with the project that you begin and you go back to it and like, wow, okay. I see it totally differently. As much as we hated hearing it when you're a baby writer and they tell you park that manuscript and come back to it. It's like, I can't. Then you do it. You're like, wow, that really does work. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Time is a really essential ingredient. Get up in the morning and it's a writing day. What are you going to do? I don't know if you noticed this, but during the pandemic at the beginning, it was very gratifying because everyone I knew suddenly lived the life of a novelist. And I was like, oh yeah, making your own fun all day isn't so hot, is it? (laughs) (laughs) I have a really rigorous schedule. I get up, I walk the dog. I always meditate for 20 minutes. When I worked at Harpo Studios in Chicago, Oprah very, very generously paid for all of us to get our mantras from Transcendental Meditation, which was like they came in for a week. And I signed up really just to get out of meetings. We got our mantras and we learned the very particular TM routine, which I don't know how, if it's really that magically different from any other kind of meditation, but boy, does it work. It just helps me center myself and focus. And I kind of daydream about what it is that I'm going to do. I use an app on my computer called literally just called self-control that stops me from (laughs) being able to look at my email or do the puzzle or whatever else. Then I work until two o'clock and then I usually walk the dog again. And then I spend the afternoon kind of answering emails and doing whatever, whatever admin life stuff comes my way. Over the course of publishing three novels, how has your process changed? The process itself probably hasn't changed in terms of knowing what I need to shut out and knowing what I need to pay attention to in order to maintain that Mm -hmm. narrative thread for as long as you can just stay with it. I can tell you that I think I've gotten better at it, keeping my mind in the place where it needs to be and separating out from it when I don't need to be there and putting it aside really is the habit of, and this is a lifelong habit of writing down the things that I need to know and writing them down every which way, taking notes by hand. I literally type up notes on my typewriter and I re-highlight them. I had a crippling learning disability as a young person. I am always trying to kind of sear information across my brain because I don't take remembering it for granted. And I think honestly that most people don't, you know, I think that the way that I push stuff into my mind is probably helpful for everyone. Maybe some people are more naturally gifted at remembering things, but I'm always trying to keep a set of facts with me so that I can, whenever it is that my mind is relaxed, it can draw the conclusions that it needs to draw from the information that it has at hand. And then from there, that's when your kind of imagination takes flight. You know, you've got critical, social, intellectual, or cultural problem that you're looking at. And you keep going around it and around it and around it. You keep kind of feeding it information. And then once you have sort of a thread on what you think might be a a way through it or comment on it, that's when you can just imagine out a scene that kind of does that in some way or form. And it can do that for good or for ill. You know, it can, you can take kind of all sides of a problem, but yeah. Exercise is a big part of the end of my day for sure. Does your mind open up when you're exercising? Do you think about writing? You know, I think about whatever is on my mind. It can be writing work. It can be the professional part of what I do. Moving my body for like 30 minutes to an hour every day. It's just absolutely an essential part of experiencing joy, experiencing happiness, keeping myself feeling focused. And it's really something that, you know, I think 
I feel really lucky to be in the generation that I'm in. My mother is in her 70s. The way that her generation approached exercise and body and self was really different. And it was really shame-based. And there's a very different emotional context around women working out. But for me, I feel there's been this neoliberal revolution of fitness everything, right? You can get a bar class, you can get a Pilates class. Anywhere you go in the United States, you've got that really nice mall that's got the core power, the pure bar, you know, the Pilates 57, whatever it is. But honestly, I like those classes. Like I'm here for it. I'll do a class. I'll do an audio class. I'll do a bunch of sit-ups with friends. I'll do a big meetup in a park. I kind of don't care what it is because the way I feel on the inside is so much better. It just, it makes such a spectacular difference. I feel that it gives me far more than what my mother was given by the influences in her life or my grandmother, you know, like... Why do we have cottage cheese? You know, like it's the diet food of women who were born in the Great Depression. And boiled eggs. And boiled eggs, but I don't, you know, and I'm sure someone is sitting in a cottage cheese mansion right now, the house that Shane built or whatever. But I don't think that felt as good for my grandmother as going to my like $20 bar class feels to me. Yeah. There's also that camaraderie that it's not a competition between you and the, I mean, I'm sure some people go in and think, oh, I'm, you know, look better or whatever. I can do this better. But for me, I like going to stuff yeah. like that because I feel like there are other people that are in the trenches with me and it's hard. Oh, it's all going to be yeah. hard, but we're <laughs> yeah. in this together. So it's different yeah. than just going and it's just me. From when you started publishing until now, have you seen any marked changes in the publishing piece or have they affected you Uh, at all? Yeah. It's really hard to describe where your own work sits in the landscape or to even like prognosticate about what people are going to be interested in because there's so many different kinds of books that people like and care about. You know, (laughs) there's so many different ways to successfully have this career. And I find that sort of endlessly fascinating Certainly within myself, I have gotten as a reader significantly more generous. I just feel like there's so much more that I understand when I read novels written, I would say in the last 10 or 15 years about what they're doing and what they're maybe trying not to do or ways that they have been shifted or cut back or things they elaborated on. I really see fiction in a different way. Novels published in the 80s and 90s, more of what I see in that are sections that I think could be excised often. I'll read a novel and I'll think, oh my gosh, I just went through 50 pages that today any editor would cut in a heartbeat. I think we just sort of have different cultural appetites for certain kinds of I don't know, of passages, of sections, you know? I mean, like probably even Moby Dick is a great example. Today, could you get away with those really long sections on whaling? Probably not. And yet they are a pleasure to read. I understand more and more and more, obviously that it is a business, but I think I understand more and more about what it is to try to meet readers where they are. You know, this is rhetoric. This is persuasion. You don't know who your reader is. The best thing that can happen to anyone who reads is that they just fall into a novel and they can stay there and that they can pay attention to it. And you were trying to get them to pay attention. I feel really lucky to have an editor who's really attuned to that. My editor, Lindsay Rose at Dutton, is so good at the order of operation stuff. You know, the kind of basic, if we put this before this, or you're losing me on here, more than a sense of pacing, it's really this kind of vibrational pluck of attention. Of keeping the reader's attention. And I appreciate that aspect of her 
work. Obviously you lose sight of what you're doing. And of course, there's so many things that you know that the reader doesn't, even, even as the whole point of the job is to figure out what you're laying out for them. So yeah, no, I feel more generous about the work of others and more understanding about the fiction that I read and more inclined to celebrate its successes and far less inclined to be disappointed by its, I don't even want to call them failures, things that aren't successes in a novel. I don't even care. (laughs) I'm so happy with what's good. What is next for you? I'm working on another novel for Dutton. It's called Fields and Waves. It is a little different than my first three books. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's not that different. It's a little more spectacular and a little more surreal. It is about a lonely clairvoyant, a woman who can actually hear other people's thoughts, which I realize sounds crazy. If you could hear within a prescribed distance. On the one hand, like, How cool would it be to stand in the operating theater of a hospital and listen to all of the surgeon's thoughts as they open up somebody's brain? Like how amazing to have access to sort of to scratch the ultimate like itch of curiosity. On the other hand, you would have to hear other people's thoughts all the time, which would be a nightmare. So basically it's a metaphor for the internet. I don't know. It's about science. It's about electricity. It's about hearing. It's about all of those things. I'm excited to hear about it. It's on your summer reading list. Ooh. Admittedly, I just read The It Girl by Ruth Ware because I love Ruth Ware. I don't know how many times you hear that from anyone who writes suspense books, but that's sat at Oxford. It's kind of a now and then between now and then something that happened many years ago. And I really enjoyed that. And what else have I been looking forward to reading? I have a stack of galleys, Deep Water by Emma Banford. Naval Vessel finds a sailing yacht in distress. Do you have any tips for new writers? Sure. I mean, I think that if you have an idea that feels as complete to you as every novel that you've ever read, then you should sit down and give it a try. You have to sit and stay with it and pay attention to it. Because if you're a reader, you know what a good book looks and feels like. You know it. The only person who can know it is you. And the only person who can do the work is you. You just have to sit and stay with it until it's something that Not only do you feel comfortable showing and sharing with other people, but it's something that you can diagram. You know, you can say the A, B, and C plots kind of go this way to front story or this way to back story. You can look at it and you really understand what it's doing. I think you don't need an MFA to have done that. I don't think you need to have necessarily worked in journalism. I think that you need a love of novels. A true deep love of fiction is sufficient because we all know the stories that come to us in a moment. We know what they are. It's really just sitting and doing the work again and again and again. Thank you, Barbara. Thank you so much for having me. To learn more, visit Barbara. If you're enjoying The Writing Table, please consider leaving us a review. There are so many podcasts out there. Reviews help other listeners find us. Thanks so much for your support.